today what I want to talk about is, is this idea of uh, how does that then happen? And, and, and what does the process kind of look like? And so the passage I want to be looking at uh, with you this morning is found in Galatians chapter 5. It's verses 1 to 15. Uh, and I titled this message, uh, Defend the Gospel. Defend the Gospel. And maybe that, uh, I'll, I'll speak to, to that, that title a little bit later on. Why don't you go to the next slide. I don't know about you, if you're a cat person, that's fine. I love you, because Jesus says I have to, but dogs are far superior, Okay. Uh, you know, cats will eat your lips and eyeballs, and if you die, a dog will lay down and die beside you, right? That's... Now, <clears throat> I have to say that because, on the other hand, I don't know if you can see this, but um, here's a picture of someone with a dog, and, and I, I always think of this after I let, like, a dog lick me or lick my face or something like that, that he has probably been uh, getting to know other dogs. <laughs> he probably has been uh, keeping up with his personal hygiene. Uh, he's probably been eating uh, at the choicest of places and uh, drinking only the best that the city has to offer. And then he licks my face. I'm reminded of uh, there's a, the passage in Proverbs, uh, as, a, as a dog returns to his vomit, uh, uh, a fool returns to their folly. In, uh, in Stockholm, Sweden... In 1973, there was a bank robbery. And uh, the, the significance about this bank robbery was uh, the, the hostages, I believe it was three women and a, and a man, the hostages, uh, they came to identify themselves with their captor in such a way that they actually didn't, uh, they didn't testify in his prosecution. And, and, and not only did they not testify in his prosecution, but they actually began to develop and gather funds for his defense. And, and, and at that time, this, the, there was some study about, like, how could these people who had been put through this uh, horrendous trial, how could they, how could they switch uh, from this sense of victimhood to identifying themselves with their captor? And so uh, maybe you've heard of the Stockholm Syndrome. This is where this idea first kind of came from. I bring this up because when we look at the first verse of uh, chapter 5 in Galatians, it says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul is encouraging, challenging, admonishing the people in Galatia not to return to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery he's referring to is, is the sins in their life and the, and the way in which that they used to strive to be righteous. See, the, it's, it's interesting, looking at this, this, this book, I, as I was studying about it, one of my problems working on a message or working on a Bible study or whatever is that I find the Bible really interesting. And, and, and I, I kind of get distracted by it. And i got to like remind myself, it's just like, look, I'm trying to work on a thing and, 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 and not think about these other ideas. But as I was working on this passage, I, I was just struck with the connections I saw between Galatians and Romans. And how, like, even in this verse here, uh, Paul says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And yet, in Romans, he actually kind of expands on that idea. And he, and he says, it's not that you don't commit yourself to, a, to slavery again. It's that you're now a slave of something else. 
that you can no longer be a slave to sin and the sins that used to control your life, but now you need to be a slave to righteousness, a slave to Christ. But the reality is, as part of our human nature, is we kind of go back to those old sins because they're comfortable. They're, they're ours. We know them. Consider the, uh, the people in the, in the, in the Exodus, uh, the nation of Israel. And whenever things got difficult, what did they do? Uh, you know what? Being oppressed by Egypt really wasn't that bad. We could probably go back. If we don't, we might just die out here in the wilderness. And they didn't just do it one time. Like, over the course of all those years, they did it over and over and over again. And, like, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read Exodus and I look at that story, I'm just like, those Israelites, they're so dumb. I'm not like them at all. No, I'm exactly like them. I'm exactly like them. Christ has set us free, and how did he set us free? You know, I was, I don't know about you, but this morning's worship uh, was really awesome. Um, I just, just a sense of, like, God's presence as we sang those words together. And, and for me, it's kind of, like, exciting because as I, as I work on my message and, and, and I, I listen and sing out those words that have been chosen, I was just like, man, that, what we were singing fits exactly with what I feel like God's put on my heart to share with you this morning. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't collaborate with them. The amazing thing is, is that, like, there is someone who is over all of these things, and so that when I collaborate with my Lord and they collaborate with their Lords, that, that our Lord brings it all together. And, and, and so, like, hopefully you feel that today, that God has a message for you in this passage and that, that he speaks to you and that it started as soon as you walked in those doors. Paul needs to challenge these people in Galatia to stand firm. To stand firm on what has set them free. And, and, and I would like to say that what has set them free is the gospel. It is the good news. The good news that Jesus died for their sins. Even though they were sinners, Christ first loved us. And made a way for us to be in relationship and connection with God. And we need to stand firm on that. Because if we don't, we will find ourselves going back to the way in which that we used to try and be righteous, be good, be acceptable. And the reality is, either we are getting closer to God, even we are, either we are getting more developed in sanctification, or we are not. There is no static position. There is no, like, we're good right here. In the next few verses, Paul says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I read this passage, and if you read Galatians, you know, circumcision comes up a lot in that book. Because the situation that was going on there is this, this whole community of people, hey, they were Jews, and they were telling all these new Christians who were coming into the community that if you want to follow Jesus, then you have to be like a Jew. But the thing is, that's not necessarily true. 
Because if you want to follow Jesus, what you need to do is believe in what he has done for you, to accept the gospel for you, and at that point in time, you are a disciple of him. And, and they were mistaking something that had allowed them to be in relationship with God, and they were enforcing it on other people, which became a distraction from the one who actually saves them. And Paul's getting mad about this, frustrated with them about this. And we see that come out in what he says. But I don't know about you, as far as I, uh, as I know, I haven't really heard of anyone pushing circumcision here. Not recently. Not at all. It's kind of a weird thing. We don't really talk about it. So then what is this passage saying to me? What does this passage have to say to us? How do you pursue righteousness? How do you pursue righteousness? Because the way in which that I individually pursue my righteousness has a severe and, and present impact on the way in which that we are a community. Paul kind of lays it out in a very stark way. There's a lot of good things that you can do in your life, or you can allow Jesus to be the good thing in your life. There's a lot of good things that you can do in your life, or you can allow Jesus to be the good thing that is in your life. And I absolutely believe that if you allow Jesus to be the good thing in your life, then what will come out of that can't be called anything but good. But the problem is, is that sometimes we look at what comes out of that life and we say that those things, those symptoms of being in unity with Christ, those are the things that we need to do. And yes, we need to do those things, but as it comes out of our relationship with God, not to force us to be good. This is the first thing that is so difficult to understand and to grasp and to really hold on to, at least I find in my own walk, is the fact that, that grace, the grace of God, the, the thing that he has done for us, it's a gift. And, and the thing about a gift, that as soon as you do something to, to purchase it, as soon as you do something to try and, 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 and deserve it, it's, it's no longer a gift. There is nothing that we can do to, to deserve or, or receive exchange for what God has done for us. And yet I find myself so often saying, God, don't you see the things that I'm doing for you? Don't you see how I, I search after you and come before you? But that's about what I am doing and not what he has done. In verse 5, and, and, and good luck, Kimmy, trying to keep up with me. I don't, I don't know how you're going to do it, okay? I'm all over the place. <laughs> verse 5 says, For the, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
So first off, we have to remember that, that, that hope, he's talking about hope. Hope is something that needs to be realized, that's going to be realized. You don't hope for what you have. You don't have to, you have it. We hope to realize the righteousness that God has for us, the, 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 the kind of community where we will see God face to face. Where at that time there will be no more tears. At that place there will be no more struggle because we will be perfectly resurrected with our Lord. And get to spend eternity dwelling in the light of his presence. But until then, we hope for that. Until then, we struggle and we suffer and life is hard. And more so because following Jesus means that now the world is against us. But God will not leave us and he will not forsake us. And he will get us to that place that we are hoping for. I'm kind of, there's this profound statement here in verse 6, though. He says, but only faith working through love. That circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Look, your, your actions of to be righteous or your inactions to be righteous or not righteous, they don't count for anything. But only faith working through love. Only faith in what Jesus has done for you can accomplish what he wants to do. And, and there's an outworking of that faith that as you connect with what Jesus has done for you, when we understand what he suffered for us, when we realize the depth of our depravity and the amazingness of who he is, when we reconcile these two things, we can't help but be awestruck. We can't help but think, why would you love me? And as that process takes place in us, day by day, we are transformed. This is a faithful thing that, oh, sorry, excuse me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's this passage that uh, faith, hope, and love uh, remain. And the greatest of these is love. And I remember as a young man in Bible school thinking about how like, awesomely intelligent I am, I would always kind of like work on, like, all right, like, how would I think thoughts about this? And, and how would I be impressive about the way I would connect these things? And I always kind of found it a little ridiculous because I would look at faith and hope and be like, well, what's really the difference? I don't know if I've ever really come up with a satisfying answer to that question, but what I can tell you is that neither of those things, faith or hope, can be accomplished without the help of God. That as I'm waiting for this thing, this place, as I struggle through this life, that I can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. Faith working through love is a profound statement. Out of our faith in what Jesus has done and is doing results a work of love. When, but we can become complacent with the works of love and place them above the one who works them. And, and to me, I really feel like this is what it means to be a defender of the gospel. You know, when you hear that phrase, defend the gospel, it sounds like you're, you're just you're going like, to take it to the, 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 the places around you. i got to bring the gospel into those places and defend it. But I would suggest to you this morning that defending the gospel has more to do about the battle that's going on in your heart than about anything else. 
that we are prone to think that there is something else that will save us, that something else will help us, than to focus on the thing that, that can. And so when I say defend the gospel, I, I really want you to defend the gospel in your own heart. I, uh, as I was thinking about this, and I, see, my dad, he was, um, he was crazy, okay? And I say that lovingly, but seriously, he had schizophrenia. Uh, and talking to him was kind of weird uh, at times. And not like, he's not like, schizophrenia has a lot of baggage with that, uh, that phrase. But uh, really what that boiled down to was, he just communicated in a weird way. He basically like spoke in illustrations. And, and so like, he would say things, and most people would just be like, what? What are you talking about? He'd use obscure references and whatnot. So you actually had to really know him to, to kind of try and understand. I used to, I called it Timonese. His name was Tim. Timonese seemed to fit. And I was thinking about, and so now because of that, every time I'm like working on something, apparently having to always think about illustrations so you can communicate with your dad uh, becomes an effective uh, tool in being a pastor. So I'm always thinking about illustrations. And I was thinking about in the Vietnam War, one of the difficult things uh, with the war was that the, uh, the Viet Cong, okay, not the regulars, but the Viet Cong, would slip into Cambodia. And so the Americans didn't end up fighting them in Cambodia because that was illegal. And sometimes I feel like in our lives, we try and, and, and fight the battles in the wrong places. That maybe uh, God's doing something in our heart. Okay, God's saying something to us. He's saying, hey, you're trying to be righteous in these sorts of ways. And then we have a tendency to kind of project that on the people around us. And we need to be careful about that. Paul goes on. And this is where you see some of his passion and frustration really come out. He says, you were running well. You were doing so good. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In this context, in this situation, what's going on, there, there is a community. There are easily identified people who are trying to subvert the gospel that was preached by Paul and, and, and those like him called by God to share it. And you could point to those people and say, look, you need to, that's the wrong gospel. That, that's inappropriately placed. There is a lie in what you are saying and in what you are believing and in what you are promoting. But this morning I want to ask you to take that, and, that question and consider it for yourself. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, personally, when I hear that, I'm just like, well, let me tell you. I've got a list of people who have been hindering me. But as I go down that list, I realize it's often me that's hindering me. There is nothing that anyone here can do to stop me from following the gospel, that can stop me from obeying Jesus. And, and we look at the way that Paul uh, lays these verses out. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who has persuaded us through the cross that he loves us so much that he wants us to be in relationship with him. And that he would go so far to do that. That God shows his love for us in that he sent his son to do this very thing. Who's hindering you from realizing that in your life? 
what's hindering you from realizing that in your life? Maybe there is something in your life that you love more than Jesus. I was uh, listening to a message, and uh, the, the preacher, he was saying, uh, you know, I hear people talk about their, their friends. I hear parents talk about their kids. Now, I hear people talk about their, their favorite sports team or their, their pet. And, and the, the love and passion that they have for those things, it's amazing. But I hear Christians doing that. And, and, and that's all well and good, but do they talk about Jesus like that? That when you talk about Jesus, does, does, does the desire and, 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 and love that you have for him come out in the way that you speak about him? Who hindered you? What hindered you from obeying the truth? I think that this begins as an internal defense. We need to defend the gospel in our heart. What is God showing us that he died for so that we can be set free from that? We need to begin that evaluation in us. I know there's a, there's a, a passage Jesus is, is preaching in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke in chapter 6. And there's this uh, interesting kind of uh, comparison he makes between a log and a speck. You know, we're quick to deal with a speck and usually slow to deal with the log. The speck being in our brother or sister's eye and the log being in our own. But, but God's concerned with the log. He's not concerned with the other people are doing around you. He's concerned with your heart and what you have going on. And he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Are you guys uh, baked bread? I don't, but my wife does, and it is delicious. She spent, when we first moved here, when we were in Saskatchewan, there's this like awesome little bakery, and we got fresh bread on a regular basis. Oh my goodness, there's nothing better than fresh bread. Can you put some butter on that and you just eat it? It's so good, okay? But when we moved here, well, we didn't know the French word for bakery, so we were kind of lost. We didn't realize that there's tons. So my wife set out, I'm going to learn how to bake really good bread. And it took, it took her a little while. There was a lot of chemistry involved. You know, she's a smart lady, and so she pieced it all together, and then there were some setbacks and whatnot, but she, she got, like, a really great recipe and way down and meant, mmm, that bread is so good. I'm not really sure where I was going with that illustration now. I just got distracted by bread. <laughs> a little leaven leavens a whole lump. There, we're back. We're back. The reality is, is that the littlest thing can destroy you, right? Because it doesn't stay like a little thing. The snowball at the top of a mountain looks very different at the bottom, right? And when we're looking at this little snowball, we're just, we're not thinking, this isn't an avalanche waiting to happen. This is a little snowball. If I had my hair blow dryer, I would defeat this snowball right here and right now. Not a big deal. And by the time it gets to the bottom of that hill, that mountain, whatever, it is destroying everything in its path. And that's how we've got to treat those things in our life that the, that the gospel is trying to address. That we can't just toss it away like it doesn't mean anything because it could destroy us and those around us. But that we've got to hand that to Jesus. 
I, I had this weird illustration that God like kind of like gave to me. I think it's from God. It's, it's weird. And so you've got to bear with me, okay? The cross is kind of like a scab. I know, that's a weird, that's a weird thing. And, and it, it sort of makes sense when you understand the way in which the cross was viewed before Jesus died on it. That it was a gross and disgusting thing. And, and, and it's so beautiful and wonderful to us now because of what it means, because of what Jesus has done. But the, the, the reason this kind of came to my mind is, you know, growing up, my mom would always tell me, you know, like, don't pick your scabs. One, that's gross, okay? But just don't do it. Leave it alone. Let it heal. It's working its way through. God created your body to naturally heal itself. And when you pick at it, it actually can cause it to become inflamed. Because you know what? As a kid, I don't know about you, but as a kid, my hands were always dirty. And so, like, if I'm touching a wound with dirty hands, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing in things that don't belong there. And it's going to take longer for me to heal. I, it might get infected. The, the threat, my mom, I don't know if she did this for you, but my mom always uh, threatened me, You're gonna, it's going to leave a scar. And if the cross is like a scab, it's this thing that God has created for us to heal us. And we need to let it do its thing. And we can't just pick at it. We've got we to gotta let it be there. And you know what? It's uncomfortable at times. It's itchy. It's painful. It's hard. But we've got to let God do what he wants to do in our lives. Because without it, we're going to be left with our best efforts. And our best efforts will not get us to that place that we are hoping for. I think about, um, God always brings this, this passage to my mind. John 3, always John 3. Whenever I'm, I'm just feeling, okay, God, I don't know where in my Bible I want to read today. I'll, like, half the time, it's John 3. In John 3, verse 18 to 21, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus is a light in our life. And, and, and he's trying to shine illuminate our hearts for us to see. And it's awkward and difficult because usually when he does that, it's apparent to those around us what's in there. And, and I look at this situation in Galatia and I feel like there's this group of people who are saying, and they're handing out flashlights, saying, here, use this light. And, and to the point where, like, they set up this whole wall of floodlights and they're just like, look, this is what you need to see in your heart, to be righteous. But you know the thing about a wall? When you put it between a light source and what you're trying to look at, you create shade. And so when we try to add things in between us and God, we create darkness that we can't see into. If, and, and what, what the the writer of the Gospel of John is saying is that like, oftentimes we do that because we don't really want to see what's in the dark. We don't want to bring it out because you know what? We kind of like the stuff that we do. We don't really want to give it up. 
But it says if we want to be in relationship with Jesus, then we need to step into that light, unhindered. We have to trust that God loves us, that he wants the best for us, that he will do nothing to harm us or destroy us or shame us, but that he is trying to lift us up. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing, but we don't have to do it alone. He is with us, and we have one another. Hopefully we have one another. Verse 10, he says, uh, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and no one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's saying some strong words, and a little bit later, he's going to talk about chopping, and it's an awkward thing to say. But the thing I want to really point out to you here is, is I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He's saying, look, it's not on me to convince you of how wrong you are because I know God will. I don't have to trust you for your sanctification. I can trust God for your sanctification. I had this really difficult thing in my life where I was discipling one of my brothers and it was an amazing experience in some senses. It took years where we're sitting and talking about God and who he is. He grew up in the same household I did. He knew the stuff that I did, I thought. But he had this view of who God was. This view that, that allowed him to do whatever he wanted. And I remember there was one specific night. He'd come to visit us and we were staying up late talking. And, and he's trying to like tell me, well, you know, like if God is really God, if God is really good, then he will essentially let me do what I want then he won't allow for all these bad kinds of things that happen in this world. He will just immediately take those things away if God is real. Because if he's anything other than those things, then I want nothing to do with him. I saw in that moment all the work and the walking alongside my brother that I had done, all the pleading with him that I had done. I, I felt as though it was all just slipping away. It was really late, and at that point in time, I just said, okay, well, I guess... We went to bed, and the next morning, he got up early, and he went home. I didn't see him again for another six months. But I didn't have to have confidence in my ability to convince him of what God was doing this hard. I could trust God for that. It's so hard to, to remember that, that God is in this moment. That, that I was talking to a mom who's worried about her daughter and, and whether or not she's going to remain uh, as a part of their family. Because, you know, if she starts hanging with these kids and going and doing these things, well, who knows where she'll end up? I don't, but I know who does. And I trust him. But sometimes that's hard. Paul says, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Anyone that doesn't know what emasculate means... In this context, you can look it up. I'm not going to talk about it. What's the offense of the cross? Like, what is offensive about the cross? We're in this situation in our province right now where there's this whole conversation about whether or not it should be shown at all in public spaces. What's so offensive about it? It says this. There is nothing you can do that is good enough to get you into relationship with God. Nothing. Everything that you do is broken and gross and dirty. And how is the, the cross lost from us? 
How can we lose what it is? Because the cross is, it says that offensive thing. Look, there's nothing that you can do. But it also, in that moment that it says, it says, but I love you so much that I will do everything to bring you into connection with me. So it says these two things, and you can't have one without the other. We can lose what the cross says, both that offensive nature, but also that loving statement when we try to achieve the results that's promised through it, when we try to earn it by whatever we do. And, and maybe it's not something as stark and crazy as circumcision, but you know what? For me, I find myself sometimes as a pastor looking around and being like, how come people aren't as holy as me? How come people don't read their Bible as much as I do? How come people don't like care as much about the ministry that I'm doing or serving in? Don't they love God? But is my focus on me or is it on Jesus? What I want to finish with is this kind of like this interesting twist that, uh, well, maybe it's not so much of a, a twist, but I, I think so. Paul says in verse, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Again, if you look in Romans, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a development of these thoughts that, that Paul is first putting down in Galatians. The gospel is not a carte blanche, uh, blank check to go and sin and do whatever you want. That, that Jesus' sacrifice for you does not excuse the things in your life that he wants to deal with. It pays for them. And he, and he calls you into perfection. He, he calls you to lay those things aside, to turn from them. That, that the freedom that is talked about in the Bible is not a freedom to just do whatever you want. True freedom has constraints. I'm not free to just take off and fly. And I think this is what Paul means in Romans when he talks about the fact that you're no longer slaves to sin. Now you are slaves to righteousness. And in righteousness, you have a freedom to live life as it was intended to be in relationship with God. And then he starts talking about the community. And he says, you need to love one another. You need to care for one another. That out of our relationship with God, that when we understand what he has done for us, we can't help but let that pour out on those around us. And he gives another example. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So here's two pictures of community. One that's biting and, and, and chewing on one another and becoming smaller and, and, and weaker. And the other is one of love. Have you ever walked into a church and just thought, man, this is a place where people love each other? There's a lot of famous churches a lot of churches that are famous for the theology that they expound, the ministries that they have developed, how they have reached and touched the world. How many churches are known by the way in which the individuals who comprise it love one another? 
Because that seems to be pretty important to God. Jesus says, the last, one of the last things he says to the disciples, it's by your love for one another. It's by your love for one another that people will know you're my disciples. We need to preach the gospel, absolutely. But the proof of the gospel is the church. And so if we preach the gospel, but we don't have love for one another, then how do people know that it's true? There is something about the unity and the love that we have that has an effect, an impact on the world around us. That there's something about when we come together and we love each other and we care for one another, that we are defending the gospel in our hearts and in one another's hearts. That against that, the gates of hell cannot stand. Sorry, I didn't expect this. I look at the city around me, the community around me, and I can't help but think that there are all these people who want the kind of community that only the church can provide because of what Jesus has done for us. And they're just missing out because we can't seem to figure it out. So I want to challenge you to defend the gospel and let that begin in your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know what you're doing today, um, but I know I trust you and that you are good. I pray and ask that you would reveal to us the things that have been hindering us, the things that uh, we've been throwing up in front of you because maybe we're afraid or we're scared. Maybe, God, we just don't know and we've never thought to ask what you want. And so, God, I pray and ask that this morning that we would walk from here, not just convicted of a message, Lord, but, but that we walk out of here wanting to see your will be done, wanting to see your kingdom be built, and that let it begin with us, God. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us discernment. I pray and ask that you would send others alongside us to encourage us, to walk alongside us, to love us the way in which that you have loved us. Because this pleases you and it glorifies you. I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.